again our second lecture on Sophocles, the Athenian stage, and, and, and Oedipus Tyrannus. This will be part two of our lecture. As I told you yesterday, I thought that was a pretty good introduction, but that there was a little bit of material that we did not yet cover. So I want to give you some better dates on Sophocles, the sort of trajectory of his career, his contemporaries, and um, therefore the context in which this Theban War will be set, or rather, the preconditions of the Theban War, because quite opposite from what we saw in the Iliad, where we jumped in in media rays and into the ninth, or excuse me, the tenth year of a ten-year-long war, here we are going to see sort of how a society devolves and corrupts and leads towards a war. Both very important moments in the history of a people. And so yesterday, remember that we talked a little bit about the connections between both the Trojan War and the Theban War. Recall that the major character, the protagonist, who will be a hero or anti-hero in this text will be called Oedipus, Oedipus the king. Recall that also the theme of this text, one of them, will be just like the theme of the Odyssey, which was what? Nothing is, yes, as it seems. Very good, very good. In fact, he will think himself a hero. He will find out that he is actually the what? The villain. And yet, in discovering that he's the villain, if he punishes himself, does that make him a hero? Perhaps so. It's an interesting question. It's a very difficult question. Perhaps if you discover that you are the villain and that you're the problem and you fix the problem, does that make you a hero? Perhaps so. Perhaps so. I say probably that more than anything else, and that is obviously the story of every superhero movie. The Joker is not a person separate from Batman. He is the dark half of Batman. That is, um, if you ever watch The Dark Knight by Christopher Nolan, he hammers that over your head over and over again. Why would I want to get rid of you, the Joker says to Batman. Exactly, because without two parts, you have no what between them? No game, no game, no hole. In any case, we talked a little bit about Air. Uh, Aristotle yesterday. We talked about two major parts of a tragedy, the recognition of a major change as well as the turn of fate, and that Oedipus is considered a perfect tragedy by Aristotle because the turn of fate and the recognition of the turn of fate come in the exact same moment for him. And in fact, I'll give you more evidence or more uh, information on that later today. Remember also the contemporaries of Sophocles. He was the second of the major tragedians. Aeschylus came before him. He was the second, uh, his name is Sophocles, and the third one that came after him was Euripides. There was also a major comic poet who we might get to read a selection or two from, if I can scrounge up some good ones, from either the birds or the clouds or maybe even Liz Estrada, just because it's pretty funny, um, uh, named Aristophanes. Let's see, let's see, let's see. We talked about heroes and anti-heroes. Okay, one thing we didn't get to talk to uh, or talk about yesterday was the use of the chorus. So, a major innovation that Sophocles had on the Greek stage is that there had been two people that would have a dialogue before him. Aeschylus was uh, one of the people, was one of the playwrights who was known to do that. Well, there's also a chorus, a group of individuals that walk around the stage. There are three movements that they make. One is called the strophe, which is called the turn, where they walk one way. The other is the antistrophe. Make sure you're writing this because you didn't get this down yesterday. The antistrophe, where they counterturn, where they walk backwards. It's as if, what, what is it that you're generally doing when you walk backwards and forwards? Thinking. Yes, it's as if they're thinking. And then they come to the middle, called an epode, and then they give the sort of, if you think 
by walking back and forth, and then you stop, and then you present your ideas. What have you done? Come to a what to your thought. Come to a conclusion. That's right. And that's often what the chorus does. They share our sort of flowing thoughts as the audience of what's going on, and they help to fill in background information, and they help to bring up useful questions to give us context for what's happening. They represent the crowd, whereas the characters in the play represent the individuals. And crowds are such an important part of plays, not only within the play itself, but obviously who watches plays? People in a crowd. Is that something that we still do these days, watch things in crowds? Yes. So there must be something that we really want to do, like to do, enjoy doing. We like to sit there and watch other people be on the spot, because who's vulnerable in that situation? You or them? Them. You're super powerful, because you're a part of a what? Big old crowd, big old crowd, that's right. All right, so each dramatic playwright used the chorus in a slightly different and innovative way, that's why we remembered it. The chorus can play a different part in different plays. In this particular play, it will play, the part it will play will be the people of Thebes, who will interact with the king of Thebes, who will be Oedipus, the tyrant king, so-called tyrant king, because he is not a blood relative to the king, so people think, even though he actually is. But again, nothing is as it was. Seems very good. It also can represent the conscious and unconscious thoughts of a character. Sometimes the chorus will say the things that we are thinking, say the things that the characters are thinking out loud, because obviously we don't have access to their internal what's. Their thoughts or monologues. It's not a fiction story where you're just reading. This is something where people are verbalizing what is happening on a stage. So if you want to know their internal thoughts, you need somebody to what you them, to tell that you them, to express them to you. Exactly right. And so... These thoughts must be expressed out loud, like when uh, a character doubts or questions himself. This will later be done on the English stage by Shakespeare with the use of so-called asides. Asides, where um, a character sort of sits by himself. These days we would have a light shine down on him and he'll say something to himself. Often, you see this happen several times in Hamlet, which you'll get to read as juniors. So the chorus might be one's personal representation of public opinion of one's character. So if at the beginning of the play, you're a hero who saved Thebes, who is king, who is supposed to save Thebes again, just like you did against the Sphinx the first time, people's public opinion of you is going to be what? Very what? High, yes. But if by the end of it, they discover that you're a father-murdering, plague-producing, mother-sleeper with her, their opinion of you is probably going to be pretty what? Pretty low. And so it's going to show you how the fate of man can turn from one end, the greatest heights of heights, to another, the lowest of lows. The sort of so-called heaven and hell ideals there. Very good. We will observe how the relationship between Oedipus and the chorus develops during the course of this play. All right, some more information. This is all very important. Obviously, I'm going to be quizzing you on every single piece of information I give you, especially the bold pieces. So, introductory information about Sophocles. I didn't think I did a great job on telling you who Sophocles was last time around, so I thought I would do that. And that's not something that I traditionally have spent much time on in my career, but I do think it's important, and so we're going to make that adjustment. So he was a tragic playwright. He was Greek. He was Athenian, technically speaking. Athens had the greatest of the playwrights, had the great Dionysia Festival every four years, and the city Dionysia Festival every uh, year. Dionysia, named for Dionysus, god of ribaldry and mirth, and of course wine, which produces all of those, as well as, of course, tragedies in the Odyssey. Poor Elpenor. 
libation to him. Also, poor Polyphemus, though I don't think we really mind him so much. He lived 496 to 406 BCE. That means 5th century. That means uh, he's between um, the so-called historians and the philosophers. The philosophers, Plato, Aristotle, wrote in the 4th century. Very good. Um, <clears throat> he wrote alongside the other two major tragedians, as I said, Aeschylus and Euripides, whose work has survived. Now, something very important and also somewhat sad. Just as we know that we only have two of the seven major epics, or excuse me, eight major epics of the epic cycle, we know that we only have seven of the 123 plays that Sophocles wrote. And the reason why he could have gotten so many is he had a long, long career. It must have been 40 or 50 years long. I think I actually have a note about that. It doesn't, I don't recall exactly how long his career was, but it was a long time. They would write three plays for each Dionysia, three tragedies, and they would eat, end each tragedy or each uh, play contest with a satyr play. And I'll talk a little bit about what satyr plays are later. They're so-called tragic comedies. They're comic, but also tragic. Um, that's what a tragic comedy is. In any case, for almost 50 years, he was the most awarded playwright in the Dionysia, the dramatic competitions of the city-state of Athens. So are we giving you the best of the best? Yes, from the time that he was alive, he was the most, or during the time he was active, he was the most awarded of the playwrights. That means he won the most amount of times. That means that the plays we are going to read that's still alive are probably the what of his plays. The best, because they must have been what more than the other plays. Mm -hmm. They must have been transcribed more than the other plays. And that is why they have survived. And they were transcribed more than the other plays because they were valued higher, just like Homer's Odyssey and Iliad were transcribed more than the so-called returns or the telegony. And so we are actually going to read what is considered the best of the best of his plays. Of all 123 and the seven remaining, it will be Oedipus King that we read. All right, good. Sophocles was very much important uh, to the development of Greek drama. Most importantly, because he added a third actor. Uh, as I told you earlier, Aeschylus was known for his two actors, his dialogues. Uh, Sophocles added a third one, an, entire, an entirely new element added to um, the stage. And you should, uh, you should think about how dynamic that changes. Going from 2,000 to 3,000, not that big a deal, but from two to three, tremendous. And the fact that this would have been a public stage at which he would have tried these experiments out where people could have booed him, and, and, and I don't actually know how the Greeks expressed food, but they, they certainly could let you know that they disliked what it was that you produced. And the fact that he had the courage to make an innovation like that is part of the reason that he was great. He thereby reduced the importance of the chorus in the presentation of the plot. One other thing that choruses were known to have done is besides just express the internal conflicts of characters and also of the sort of situation itself, is they would explain plot points for us. Well, uh, the crowd explaining is one thing, but an individual explaining in dialogue with others is quite another. It's a far more sophisticated manner of expression of information. And he would thus develop his characters to greater extent. It's very interesting how you see in Greek drama uh, a sort of coming of the individual, e pluribus unum, out from the group. It's very similar to uh, what Old Testament scholars say about the development of man in the Old Testament. 
So you get sort of general man at first, atomos, which just means man. And uh, there's like this very interesting anthropomorphized figure of the divine. But then as you go down farther and farther towards the end of the Old Testament, you get far more individualized, personal characters. You see the same thing in this dramatic form in ancient Greece rather than in the Middle East. You see always a, a striving towards differentiation and individualization in man. Very interesting, especially given the fact that we are amongst the newest cultures that exist as Americans. And what is it we value higher than anything? The who? The individual. The individual. Yes. All right. So Sophocles, as I said earlier, he was born in 496. He obviously died in 406 BCE. He was the son of a man named Sophilus, who was a wealthy armor manufacturer. Probably reminds you of Tony Stark, Iron Man, and his father, Tony Stark. Uh, and he was born in the rural community of Hippos, Colonus, and Attica, which is a place just outside Athens. And in fact, one of his plays that still survives, Oedipus at Colonus, is based in this area, which is very, very sweet, I think. All right, here we go. Here we go. His artistic career began in earnest in 468 BCE, so he was about 28 when that happened. Uh, and he, in his very first, or excuse me, in this year, took first prize in the Dionysia theater competition, defeating the reigning master of Athenian drama, Aeschylus. And that is the way that you produce mastery in a competitive art. You have to beat a master that came before you. Aeschylus was the man before him. Perhaps I'll give us some, perhaps I'll bring a quote or two from the, from the Orestia, from where Orestes has to speak to Clytemestra. Yes, that would be, that would be very good. And perhaps I'll also include a quote or two from Euripides' The Bacchae. Those are, uh, the Orestia is a trilogy of plays and uh, by Aeschylus, and the Bacchae is one of the just, I would say, nastiest and most profound of the plays by Euripides. The Agamemnon is sometimes considered the most profound play of Aeschylus, and also the hardest ancient Greek to translate. Hmm. All right. Sophocles became a man of importance in the public halls of Athens, as well as in theaters. He wasn't just a theater. He wasn't just a theater rat or a playwright. He was also elected as one of the ten strategoi of uh, Athens. That is where the word strategy comes from. A strategos was a general of sorts, a high public official. And in fact, he commanded armed forces and was a junior colleague of the very famous uh, Pericles. Pericles, who gave a very famous funeral oration in Thucydides' history. Thucydides was himself the junior historic writer to Herodotus, uh, two writers that I hope to get further iterations of this class to read. Um, Pericles was known as the greatest statesman of Athens, and so to have worked alongside him was a great honor. And in fact, he was the man that led the Athenians during the Peloponnesian War against the Spartans, which they would eventually lose due to, the, uh, due to their mistaken estimation of Alcibiades, who would uh, work against them with the Persians and the Spartans after, uh, interestingly enough, impregnating the Spartan king's wife while he was gone. <laughs> Alcibiades was a very interesting character. You can read about him in Plutarch. In any case, in 443 BCE, he, exert, he served as one of the Hellenotomii, or treasurers of Athena, and helped to manage the finances of the city during the reign of Pericles. And so, 
He was a treasurer. He was a playwright. He was a strategos. He was a very useful, influential, powerful, and good man. And in 14, 413 BCE, he was elected as one of the commissioners, commissioners who crafted a response to the catastrophic destruction of the Athenian expeditionary force in Sicily during the Peloponnesian War. Yes? Oh, perhaps a renaissance man of that time. That wasn't really a term that would have been expressed at that time because the idea behind a renaissance man is like a man from the renaissance who is a poet and an artist and an inventor. You think of Leonardo da Vinci. But yes, uh, you might also say that just the people at that time who had skills and were of the upper echelon were the people that had all the skills. He could write. He could read. He could think. He could manage finances. He could manage his own estate. He had land, so he could manage the estates of others. He understood rules and laws and morals because he read rules and laws and morals and integrated those into his works. Um, and so I suppose if your idea of a Renaissance man is somebody who is highly capable and thus anything that they do, they bring their high capacity to, then yes. I would say yes, that's right. All right, let's keep moving. Sophocles died at the venerable age of 90 in 406 or 405 BC, as I was saying, having seen in his lifetime both the Greek triumph of the Persian Wars, which are written about by Herodotus, um, uh, the expulsion of the alien forces of Persia, Xerxes, Artaxerxes, Darius, Cyrus, major figures in Herodotus there and during the war and what led up to the war, uh, as well as the terrible bloodletting of the Peloponnesian War. He saw the terrible loss of the Athenians to the Spartans after a plague and invasion by Spartans. He had a son named Geophon, also a grandson who was named for him, named Sophocles, who himself would become a playwright. He saw a lot of things in his life. He played himself a lot of roles in his life. And so in his, play, or in his plays, in his theater, he includes a lot of his life experience. So will his plays be rich with information, not only about Greek life or Athenian life, but about life itself? Yes, of course. You live that long, you play that many roles, of course you acquire massive amounts of what within yourself? Knowledge. What's our favorite word, though? Information. Yes, it has formed his character. Good, 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 good. So his writings. Like I was saying earlier, among Sophocles' earliest innovations were his addition of a third actor contra Aeschylus' use of two. Distinguishing himself, showing himself to be his own branch on the tree that is uh, the, the great theater tree in the sky. Uh, interesting metaphor there. In any case, uh, even Aeschylus, and this is a bit of research I found out last night, supposedly adopted the third actor near the end of his career, which is a mark of uh, great favoritism towards Sophocles. If you innovate in a way away from an old master and that master then copies your innovation, that means that you are yourself a what? A master, somebody worthy of imitating, somebody worthy of imitating, and those are the people worthy of imitating the masters because they are themselves the people who innovate. And so to imitate a master means actually that you should be what? Whating for yourself. Who's following? Innovating, thinking for yourself, making things new. All right, good. As I said earlier, he further reduced the role of the chorus, created an opportunity for deeper development between each of the characters, a more intimate take on each of the characters within his plays, which we will soon see in Oedipus Tyrannus, just how intimate the connections are between, say, Yocasta 
and Oedipus, Oedipus and Creon. Um, I might give you a little bit about Antigone and see the interplay between her and Ismene, her sister. Antigone was the daughter of Oedipus, Ismene, her sister. Um, uh, but one thing you see is the, de the development of the personality of the characters in Sophocles. You see also the, the development of relationships between those characters. They play their own particular roles. Some people um, uh, sort of conservative hierarchical roles, some sort of progressive roles. And you can see sort of the transmission of the tradition of a society through these characters, as well as the changing of a society and how quickly it can happen. Most of his plays show an undercurrent of sort of fatalism. Uh, that means that a recognition that the characters will die, that things will end at some point. Just like a play ends, just like a book ends, just like a course ends, just like a life ends. Fatalism is something that all people must confront in a stoic fashion, just to reference a Roman philosophical school. And he started using uh, Socratic logic, even though he existed, of course, before, uh, or a little bit before Socrates. I'd have to get Socrates' dates here. Um, well, and also during the time of Socrates. He lived a very long life. Um, Socrates was known for his use of so-called Socratic logic, where he would ask questions, people would answer questions, and he would deduce conclusions from those questions. Well, that's something that we do in this class every day, especially in our Socratic seminars. And uh, 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 he, continued, he continued on without Aeschylus after Aeschylus died in 456 BCE and became himself the most preeminent um, playwright in Athens during his very long, almost 50-year-long career. All right. Even though he imitated Aeschylus early in his career, he still had some reservations about his style. And that was the first stage of his career. Uh, the scholar that I read for this put forward a three-stage um, three uh, career orientation for Sophocles, much as scholars often break Plato's work into three phases, often an early, a middle, and a late phase. In early phases of thinkers and writers and playwrights, often you see imitation of the style of the great. Second, you start to see them find find their own style. Third, you often see them develop a style all their own. And so in the second stage of Sophocles' career, he uh, introduced new ways of evoking feeling in his audience, which if you think about that is really quite unique. A uh, new way to make you feel emotions through further developed characters and a smaller role of the chorus is something that nobody had ever done before. And then in his third stage, he paid more heed to so-called diction. That's prose. That's the language of his characters. It became more poetic, more beautiful, more evocative of emotion. Just as somebody who speaks very well in front of you can evoke emotion in a way that somebody who speaks in a very dull and uh, uh, incomplete way cannot. His characters spoke in a way more natural to them and uh, expressive of their individual feelings, which is interesting. Because what is more evocative of feelings in you than the fact of a human expressing their feelings right in front of you? It's generally when somebody is full of emotion in front of you that you find yourself full of what yourself? Emotion, right? Somebody's like, ah, they're going crazy. We tell them to calm down because we don't want to get infected with their what? Their panic, their terror, their fear, their anger, right? Good. All right. Very important here. Of the 123 plays he had, these are the seven that continue to survive. They are the Ajax, I used to teach that. That circles around the, um, the death of Ajax, or Aias the Greater, when he mistakenly kills cattle 
rather than his friends, and due to shame, ends his own life because of that. The Antigone, which is second to Oedipus the king, generally considered one of the greatest plays written by Sophocles and one of the greatest plays of the Greek stage. If I do not teach you this play, make sure that you read it and watch it in college. Perhaps you can watch it on YouTube. It is very, very famous, and it circles around what happens after the Theban War, after the deaths of Eteocles and Polynices, after the leaving of Oedipus, the rightful or unrightful king of Thebes, and what happens after that. Antigone wants to bury her brother. Her brother is defined as an enemy of the state. Enemies of state are not allowed to be uh, buried, but she says that her fa familiar obligation outweighs her political obligation. And therein lies the debate. Which one is a more important obligation? Family or country? And that is a question that Americans had to ask at one point, too. Do you recall when? For calling your eighth grade history course. Not the Revolutionary War, the Civil War. Very good, very good. All right, there's also the Trachinii from his early works. Oedipus the King comes from his so-called Middle Period. Very good. And then Electra, daughter of Agamemnon, Philoctetes. I used to teach that as well. That's about the acquisition of Philoctetes by Odysseus and Neoptolemus during the Trojan War. And, of course, Oedipus at Colonus, which is based in the place near Athens where he was born, come from his late period. Those are the only plays we still have of Sophocles. You could read all of them in like a long weekend if you wanted to, and then say for the rest of your lives you have read all of the works of Sophocles that we still have in their complete forms. Very good, very good, very good. The three so-called Theban plays will be what we'll be focusing on, and in particular, we'll be focusing on Oedipus the King. And now one thing I told you earlier about the festival of Dionysus, the Dionysia, the city Dionysia, or or the uh, great Dionysia, is that you would show three tragedies in a row on three consecutive days and then a satyr play to sort of cleanse people's palate at the end of it. So, end of it. Sort of, you get a lot of tragedy, you feel a lot of deep emotions, and then you need some comedy to make you feel a little better. Well, <clears throat> these three Oedipus plays were not performed or written at the same time. They were not written as a traditional trilogy, though they're often sold as a trilogy. So that's something you should know, and that's a piece of knowledge that not every has. <clears throat> These are certainly the best known plays of Oedipus and the most purchased, but they were written separately over a period of about 36 years. And so Oedipus at Colonus is one of his most mature works, far more mature even than Oedipus the King, though Oedipus the King is generally considered his best work, which does not mean that even when your craft is at its highest pitch, you produce your best work, oddly enough. Um, or perhaps we just all misjudge what his best work actually is. And these were never intended to form a consistent trilogy, as I said. All right, moving forward. There are fragments of many other plays by Sophocles that exist that we find in the works of philosophers and other playwrights. Varying sizes, varying conditions, including fragments of the Ignoitai, the, the Tracking Satyrs, which is his best preserved satyr play, after your, or the best preserved satyr play that we have, besides Euripides' The Cyclops, which was obviously a tragic comedy or a comedy. Now, something interesting about a satyr play is it's an ancient form of a so-called tragic comedy, very similar to our modern day, so the scholar I was reading says, burlesque-style shows. So what is a satyr? Well, the chorus members, A, are all satyrs who are guided by Salinas. Salinas was the companion of Dionysus and was himself a, a satyr. I think he actually 
came, walked around on an ass, on a donkey. And so he was sort of a very funny comic figure. And satyrs are themselves nature spirits who combine male human traits with the ears and tails of horses. So they are like jack asses, which is why to this day we call somebody who is acting foolish a what? Don't need to say it. In any case, you know. You know what it is we call them. And they have beards, hairy bodies, flat noses, and according to Britannica.com, also a very particular piece of the male, uh, male anatomy that would be uh, protruding in a very particular way. A little bit inappropriate here, but definitely part of history. Definitely part of history. The idea is that they were very potent nature forces, the sorts of very masculine forces. Apparently humor in comedy was considered sort of a masculine force, which is a very interesting idea of those ancient Greeks. In any case, those are the two ways to look at life, too. So the playwrights would have to leave. There's a comic way to look at it, as if nothing really matters. And there's a tragic way to look at it, as if everything really matters. And so perhaps life is something of a mixture of those two. When you're just joking around, you're acting like nothing matters, wasting your time. When you're living a tragic sort of life, you're striving towards a goal that perhaps you will never quite get to. And you'll certainly never get your time back from pursuing that goal. Something worth thinking about for our next seminar. And so, uh, like I'd said earlier, the Dionysia, at the Dionysia, whether it be the city or the Great Dionysia, which was like the Olympics every four years, much bigger uh, festival, you would produce three tragedies, perform on three consecutive days, and one satyr play, a palace queen. All right. Oedipus the king. This will be the last slide of the day. In Greek, as I've told you, it was Oedipus Tyrannus. Tyrannus, excuse me. I was trying to make it plural. In Latin, Latin, Oedipus Rex. So sometimes you'll see it translated as English as Oedipus the king. Sometimes you'll see it in Latin as Oedipus Rex. Sometimes you'll see it in Greek as Oedipus Tyrannus. The reason Tyrannus, that's where we get the word tyrant, is the idea that he was not a blood relative of the king. He earned his kingship through merit, even though he was literally related to Laius. Nobody knew that at that time, however. Yes? Wait, but then... There's no, I, I thought the wooden mountain would have been king to his six-emperor Tyrannus. You thought, what about that? That Tyrannus would have been converted to Tyrannus in Latin. Tyrannus in Latin. That's why some people, yes, yeah, six-emperor Tyrannus, obviously said by John Wilkes Booth, on, on a play, and he was himself an actor, it was at a playhouse that he shot Lincoln in the back of the head and said, thus always to tyrants. That's why some people consider Oedipus Rex a mistranslation of the Latins. They think it should be Oedipus Tyrannus instead of Oedipus uh, Tyrannos uh, from the Greek. Yes, I would say that it is a mistranslation because a rex is a king from which we get the word regal, a traditional king. Unless the Latin, the Latin transcribers, and this is highly unlikely, had a very sophisticated understanding of rex and thought, well, he is actually the king even though he was a tyrant in the perception of those around him. And I mean, what is truth when it comes to that? What you really are or what people perceive you to be? Hard to say with a symbolic function like king. Hard, very hard to say, right? It's like you tell people to do things, if they perceive you as king, they do them. If they don't perceive you as king, they don't do them. If they don't do them and you are the king, are you really the king? It reminds me a bit of Odysseus when he gets home. Is he the king before he defeats the suitors? Doesn't seem like it. And Agamemnon, when he gets home, is he still the king? Hard to say, hard to say. All right, so... This was first performed in 429 BCE. So pretty late in his career, still the middle part of his career, about 24 years before his death. It was the second of his Theban plays to be produced. It comes, however, 
first in the internal chronology. It will be followed by Oedipus at Colonus, and then, of course, the last work is Antigone. Uh, don't get those twisted. A lot of people get Antigone as second because most people don't read Oedipus at Colonus. Follows the story of King Oedipus of Thebes, the tyrant King Oedipus of Thebes, who has unwittingly, as I told you yesterday, killed his own father, Elias. Nobody knows about this, not even him. And married and lain with and had children, four of them, with his own mother, Jocasta. His children are two sons, Eteocles and Polynices, two daughters, Ismene and Antigone. And over the centuries, many people have thought that this was the Greek tragedy par excellence, as in this is the best of the Greek tragedies, so of course this will be the work that we want together ourselves, that we read together ourselves, because it is the summit, or the so-called summit, top of Sophocles' achievements. All right, we'll get to the body of the text starting tomorrow. Good work today, y'all.